You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 132 of the Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and today my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe, are unable to join me. Um, but for this week's episode, we are really pleased to be joined, well, I am really pleased to be joined by Ashley Thompson. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's the end of the semester. You know, we're getting through it right before the break. Yes. It's always a busy time of year for everyone, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we're recording this Sunday right before Thanksgiving. So yeah, a hectic time for a, a lot of people's schedules, I can imagine. So real quick, Ashley, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Just, you know, where are you working and how long have you been working there? Yeah, so I am Ashley Thompson, and I am currently working at Archaeology Southwest, which is a nonprofit archaeological organization based in Tucson, Arizona, aka Donna Otham and Pasquayaki lands. I've been working there since January, so almost a year now. And before that, I was in graduate school at the University of Arizona. I'm currently on a leave of absence from my PhD program. I reached the candidacy stage, but then the pandemic happened and I decided to take a break, which has been really, really great for me. Absolutely. And so Ashley is also a contributor to Emily Van Altenai's edited volume, which listeners may have heard of a couple times. So it's like actually really cool to have Ashley finally on the show because we've been wanting to have Ashley for some for some time. And with that, um, Ashley, you are an indigenous archaeologist. So what what's your nation? Yeah, I'm an enrolled member of the Red Lake Ojibwe tribe. And so I'm Anishinaabe. Red Lake is located in northern Minnesota. My mom is from there, grew up there the early part of her childhood. And then my dad's family, they're white from rural Minnesota. So I'm Anishinaabe living in the desert right now. (laughs) Awesome. So what got you into anthropology and archaeology in the first place? Were you exposed to it early on in your public education or was it more of kind of like a college introduction? So it was more of a college introduction, though I must say my brother and I were huge fans of the Indiana Jones series. (laughs) So I would say that was my first exposure to archaeology. But when I was growing up, I didn't realize that archaeology was a part of anthropology. And I didn't even realize what anthropology really was, the study of humans. And so when I was an undergraduate student we had to take a freshman seminar class and I ended up in one about, it was called like American Indians and popular culture. And it was taught by a Métis indigenous woman who was a cultural anthropologist. And it was really eye opening for me because I'd never been taught by an indigenous person. I didn't even know what anthropology was, like I said, and I was really Even though it was like an 8 a.m. class, (laughs) I was really excited to go to class. And it it was just really fascinating for me to like learn about indigenous people and an academic setting in a way that was not problematic. Like a lot of my kindergarten through 12th grade education was. 
Because when I was learning about Indigenous people, unfortunately, they were always historicized. We never really talked about current issues in Indian country. And I was just really enamored with this class because one, the professor was really great. And, you know, that always helps in classes. And then two, we were taking a critical lens and like studying how we as Native people are portrayed in the media. And I just like thought that was so cool. And I started realizing all of the problematic like stereotypes that the media holds and perpetuates about Indigenous people. And then started think about thinking about like what does good representation of our communities look like? And so I actually went in as a student as a environmental science major, but I really loved Dr. Pelletier's class so much that I ended up just taking more of her classes because I enjoyed her teaching style and the content so much. And so as I started taking more classes, I realized that I was much more interested in studying humans, specifically indigenous people. And I ended up switching my major to anthropology and also American Indian studies and English. And so that's kind of how I came to anthropology and archaeology specifically. It was a class required for the major. And I had already had some experience doing ecology fieldwork which I really enjoyed working outside. I'm a hands-on learner, so it was really nice to be in a fieldwork setting and learn that way. So I already knew going into my archaeology class like that I might like it because I was like, I like to work outside. I like to study humans. And so I took my archaeology class, learned more about the discipline. And I took my field school, and I did really enjoy it. And so that's kind of how I got into archaeology. It was kind of, it wasn't what I set out to do, but it was something that I ended up in and loving. All right. And where did you do your undergrad in with these, what, three different bachelor's degrees, English, anthro, and... Yeah, it was actually four. But um, (laughs) so it was at University of Minnesota Morris. And that's a really neat story, kind of how I ended up there. So it's one of the few public universities that has a Native American tuition waiver. Unfortunately, the school, its history is that it started out as a boarding school for Native American kids in the late 1800s. And it was a boarding school for a few decades. It got transferred to the state of Minnesota as a property once the boarding school closed And when they transferred the property to the state of Minnesota, there was a clause that ensured that Native American students would get tuition free on that campus. And the university has honored that. So that was like one of the reasons I ended up there. But I also had family alum that went to University of Minnesota Morris, Um, actually my dad's side. So my non-Native side, I have great uncles, great aunts. and and an uncle that went to Morris. And so I was exposed to it really early on. And my grandmother on my dad's side actually grew up in the town of Morris, Minnesota. And it's like a really small town on the prairie. When I was a kid, I would go there for family reunions and to my grandma loved to visit her old hometown. And I decided to do a campus visit when I was in high school and really liked it and ended up attending. And I'm really glad I did. (laughs) Excellent. That's 
awesome. Like I desperately wish I had known more about universities with tuition waivers when it was time for college. It could have saved me some some debt, some debt I have to pay back later. But with that being said, do you think like with your multiple degrees and your perspective as an indigenous woman, does that give you a better insight into archaeology and working with descendant communities, having all these different ontologies and, and paradigms kind of like backing your, you know, the way that you look at the world and look at your research? Absolutely. I would say that out of my four majors, they're all, they all really complement each other really well. And Morris was a small school. So like there is only a few faculty in American Indian studies and one of them was an English professor. So I ended up taking a lot of her classes and I really like writing and literature. So I ended up also majoring in English because there was overlap between my American Indian studies classes and my English classes. So it, it wasn't like I was taking a bunch of credits that there wasn't any overlap, but I really think that American Indian studies is a great major for people that do archaeology, particularly in North America, because it really provides you with a framework for understanding living Indigenous people. And I'm a strong believer that if you're working in North America, you should at least have an understanding of the Indigenous people who are who created the material culture, the sites, etc., that we study as North American archaeologists. So AIS was a super helpful major. And then multicultural studies, it was a tack on major that was pretty easy to get with my the classes I was already taking. But again, just helping me understand people that are different than myself and that come from different cultures was really beneficial to, to my to my work right now. And then English, I mean, writing helps you in all aspects of life. I think a lot of the opportunities that I've garnered over the years have been because I have a strong writing background. So I can write grants, I can write papers. It's, it's not, it's something I enjoy. And it's something that I'm okay at. And English definitely helped me in that regard. So I feel like all of these majors have helped me. Um, And I also wasn't really sure, like, as an undergraduate student, what I wanted to do with my career. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll be a writer, I'll get that English background, or I don't know where I'll end up. So that was another reason for diversifying my educational background. Understood. And then so what made you want to pursue graduate school? Did you take time off between undergrad and grad school to go like work CRM or work in a different field? Or was it kind of like straight, you got out in May and then got back into school in August? You know, I really wish I had worked in, a, in the field for a gap year, but I did take a gap year. It was in a totally unrelated subject matter. I was in AmeriCorps for a year working at an elementary school doing literacy teaching to, to young kids. And so I needed a break from undergrad. Like I had a lot. <laughs> I was a very busy undergraduate student, like between like all of my classwork, working part-time. I was also in cross-country and track and like was part of a bunch of student orgs. So I really did want to take a break and consider if archaeology was what I wanted to pursue. And so during that time, I, I did feel like it was a career I wanted to go into. So I started applying to graduate schools, which takes a lot of time in and of itself. So 
So yeah, I don't know if I would have been able to do that my senior year on top of everything else that was going on. And yeah, I applied to several schools that looked like a good fit. I was looking for programs that had faculty that worked with indigenous communities because I wanted to do indigenous archaeology. I was looking for programs that were funded. <laughs> like I, I definitely, if they offered um, funding, I they were higher on my list. I think there was only one grad school that didn't have any funding. And I was also like, you know, you want to end up somewhere where you want to live. So that was also <laughs> a part of my my decision making process. And I got into almost all of the schools I applied to, but I narrowed it down to the University of Arizona, UMass Amherst, and Michigan State University. And the only, I hadn't been to UMass Amherst and I hadn't been to MSU. So during that time, I was able to do visits and meet the faculty and and my advisors that would have been my advisors had I gone into those programs. And meet with graduate students as well, who that was really helpful hearing the insider scoop on what's happening within those graduate programs. And it was a really hard decision, to be honest, like Michigan was really appealing because I wanted to stay in Anishinaabe Aki or Anishinaabe land and continue like in my language classes, my Ojibwe language classes and, you know, being around the Anishinaabe community UMass Amherst was awesome because Sonia Adelaide would have been my advisor. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. But then I, I just didn't feel like the indigenous student body was really strong out there. I did meet some native students, but compared to the University of Arizona, where I ended up, there's a ton of native students on campus. And the University of Arizona is where I ended up for, for a number of reasons, but they had a lot of faculty that had worked with indigenous communities. And I, I really like the Southwest and, um, they had a really, they have a really strong reputation as a, as an anthropology school. So I ended up here and I'm, I'm, again, I'm glad I ended up where I am. I think it really is kind of like I was meant to be here. A lot of opportunities popped up that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So Right. So when you got off the plane in Tucson, did you just immediately dry out from going to the Great Lakes down to the <laughs> desert? Like that, I imagine that that must have been a shift. Oh, yes, that was a major shift. But I honestly like I get cold easily and <laughs> the the long winters up north can really get to me. And so it was a welcome change. It's definitely an opposite climate compared to Minnesota. But but the desert has really grown on me, the Sonoran Desert with all of the saguaro cactus and like amazing wildlife. And there's tons of mountains down here, actually, which I didn't realize. Um, and so you can escape the summer heat um, by like going up the nearby mountains. So, yeah, it was a definitely a change, but um, I, I really enjoy living here. And on that note, we're going to go ahead and end segment one of episode 132. We'll be right back with Ashley Thompson. And welcome back. We're here with Ashley Thompson. So just kind of starting off this segment, Ashley. So do you think your approaches to archaeology and anthropology are different than your colleagues who aren't indigenous? And not just like in terms of field work, but even when you got to Arizona as a graduate student, did you notice like how you contributed to conversations and topics in your coursework differently than some of your colleagues who came from more Eurocentric backgrounds. Absolutely. I did. 
Yeah, I think like one thing that makes me different than non-Indigenous archaeologists that work in a more Eurocentric paradigm is I'm always asking myself about the descendant communities and wondering if my work and my research is in line with their values. I know that some archaeologists privilege the archaeological record and protecting material culture over anything, but my thinking is, is like, I want to respect the, the descendant communities first and foremost, even if that means not doing traditional archaeological research or changing projects or whatever. Um, it's really important to me that the, the descendant communities are involved and respected. And so I think that that's different than a lot of our colleagues in the field that don't work with Indigenous communities or interact with Indigenous archaeology. And that's fine. Like one of my mentors actually at University of Arizona once asked me, do you think that everybody in North American archaeology should be practicing Indigenous archaeology? And I was like, hmm, that's a good point. Like he was like, yeah, not everybody that we know would, you know, be a great sort of collaborator with Indigenous communities. And I kind of agree with that. But I do think that, you know, we should all at least be aware of the descendant communities and like do things that aren't antagonistic or not in line with their with with the community's values. So so yeah, but I, I think that also that we're lucky because um a lot of we have like scholars that came before us that paved the way for indigenous archaeology. So like, you know, from the from NAGPRA forward we've had a lot of scholars in front of us that have set the stage for more projects to be done collaboratively with communities. And it's not, it wasn't hard for me to like be an indigenous archeologist per se, because, because of them and and the great work that they did before us. No, and I definitely have to agree with that. Like Joe Watkins and Sonia and like others definitely got, took a lot of the brunt of being pioneers into indigenous archaeology and created a space for, for us to, to flourish in a way that I don't think I personally struggled as much as like maybe Joe or Sonia, like they've definitely made it easier for me to do my work. So I'm deeply appreciative of, of them and everything they did back in the two thousands and late nineties. So totally, totally understand. Mm-hmm. And kind of moving forward with that, like, have you faced any challenges in the field as related to your background or kind of that need to keep in mind descendant communities, especially like in the Southwest, right. Who have, you know, different perspectives on the past and different what's the word I'm looking for, how they see the material culture, how it should be treated is very much different than um, how archaeologists would treat it. So it's kind of what have been your experiences with with some of these uh, maybe challenges? Yeah. So I can think of kind of two different ones. And the first one, I guess, is during my field school. Um, so I, I went to a field school that was not connected to my university because Morris didn't have a field school. And so I actually went to the University of Alaska Fairbanks and went and worked for like, I think it was like six weeks up in, in the interior of Alaska. 
And we were working at a paleo Indian site, the oldest component being 13,000 years old. So, you know, like a really old site. And there was a lot of non-native students. There was only me and then an Athabascan woman who were the indigenous students or even like the only indigenous presence. Like we didn't have any lectures by indigenous people, none of that, which I see other field schools having. And now I wish I'd like known to, to look for those types of field schools, but there really wasn't much indigenous presence at my field school. And one of the students posed the question, why should indigenous people have authority over material culture that is one, so ancient and two, They viewed it as like not belonging to indigenous people, but belonging to to humankind generally. And I think they viewed this site as being like thousands of years old. And so maybe indigenous people had a distant connection to it. And therefore, indigenous people shouldn't have rights or authority over how that site is managed and studied. And at this site, not the year I worked on, on it, but like uh, in a previous year, there had been human remains found. And so my fellow field school student and I, the one who was indigenous, we were just like that night pretty miffed about that question because obviously like for indigenous people, a lot of times like the time gap doesn't matter as much. And as indigenous people who have seen our sites studied so long without collaboration or input or permission, we were just surprised that people were still kind of thinking in this way. And I mean, now, like 10 years after field school, like I've come to find out that a lot of people kind of have similar sentiments as that, that person. But I would say like, that's kind of one of the struggles or challenges of being an indigenous archeologist is People, I don't think, one, totally understand where Indigenous people are coming from when we when we say we want to protect our, our ancestors' resting places or we want to at least have input in how research is done at Indigenous sites. So that's one of the struggles. And then another struggle, which is interesting, is like maybe some lashback from other Indigenous people themselves that don't really understand Indigenous archaeology or how it can be beneficial to, to tribal nations. And so with good reason, I guess, Indigenous people are very wary of anthropologists and archaeologists. And there's a lot of contentious history there between descendant communities and scientists. But, you know, I have seen instances where archaeology has helped tribes protect their cultural landscapes and help tribes in some way. So, so that's, I think another challenge is kind of changing the narrative around archeology span and maybe even educating our fellow indigenous people that um, yes, it's a field that started in colonization, but in some ways we can use it for good. And I really like to think of the a project I worked on in grad school with the Blackfeet Nation. And um, because of research done by that team before me, they were able to prove this longstanding presence of Blackfeet in lands adjacent to the reservation, but weren't on the reservation. And it's a place called Badger Two Medicine. 
And because of the archaeological research combined with the Blackfeet oral tradition, they were able to better protect this this wilderness area and cancel the mining and oil leases that that were were there. So so yeah, I think that like working with archaeologists can can help indigenous communities accomplish some of our goals. And I like to remind or like let people know that not all archaeology is bad. So Absolutely. I mean, that is a theme I think many indigenous anthropologists run into. Even I was surprised with in my own community that our language teachers who got their master's in linguistic ant. So they're not even necessarily archaeologists. Well, they're not archaeologists, but they were seeing the kind of the same backlash being an anthropologist. And it's just they're like, wait a second, like we're bringing the language back and we're trying to you know, do all this with the community just because we're anthropologists and kind of seeing them kind of in that same thread of even being in a discipline that has much more of an immediate effect as to cultural revitalization, uh, having to face some of these longstanding and completely reasonable hesitations towards anthropology in general. So, yeah, that's I, I get that. And and with that being said, have you ever been able to do work with your home community, the Red uh, Lake Ojibwe, with, you know, archaeological research or anthropological methods at all? Yes. So I got to do my master's in collaboration with our TIPO. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted my master's research to be, I was really missing Ojibwe lands. And so I thought, like, I should just try to do a project with my um, my tribe. And so I met our tribal historic preservation officer, as well as some other community members and leadership. And I told them, like, get, I'm trying to figure out my master's research project. And I don't necessarily, like, want to come up with a research question and project on my own. I would like to do it in collaboration with the tribe so that we can do something that's not just for me, but also could help the community. And Red Lake, and actually across Indigenous country, there's been a lot of great work in the realm of food sovereignty. And at Red Lake, they have um, certain programs in the community to reconnect our people to our foodways, not just because of all of the diet-related diseases that our communities face, but also for cultural reasons, because our foods are so intricately tied to our culture and language that I think a lot of people view it as a way to keep Ojibwe Moen or the Ojibwe language and our traditions alive. And so they were like really interested in like an overview of what are Red Lake Ojibwe traditional foodways. There's been research done on Anishinaabe food generally. There's been quite a bit of research on manumen or wild rice, but like Red Lake is a little bit unique um, in terms of our, our lands. Like for example, in the contiguous reservation, which is actually really, really large. I think it's like 800,000 acres or so, there really isn't much wild ricing. And so like traditionally, historically, our people would move around. And so like people that lived at Red Lake could go to ricing beds outside of what is now the reservation. So anyway, I was really intrigued by this project. And they were also, in terms of methodology, interested in interviews with elders. And so that was like, yes, absolutely. I love talking to elders. 
I could listen to them all day. <laughs> and so I formed this master's project around like an overview of our traditional foodways and also the importance that they hold to the community. And it was really amazing. It, it made it so that I could continue to return to Red Lake um, because in the Southwest, like I would go back once a year, maybe for a visit, but I just really missed being up there. And so, and then I, I got to learn a lot about our foodways because as someone who didn't grow up in Red Lake, I didn't really get to know and grow up with the, the that, that sort of food knowledge. And so I did that project. It was my, my master's thesis. And I'm really happy that I, I went that route. And something I was thinking about during the last segment is we were talking about how we have so many amazing Indigenous scholars that came before us in archaeology, but also within Anishinaabe studies, there's a ton of Ojibwe scholars that come before me. And there's a lot of resources, like literary resources, for Ojibwe language. And so I feel really lucky, too, to, be, to come from the Anishinaabe community, which is one population wise, I think we're like the fifth largest tribe in North America, if you include Canada. And because of that, I think we've had a lot of amazing scholars come out of our own communities. And so for my my food sovereignty research, I got to draw on, on previous work. I wasn't like the first one or anything, which again, was really, really helpful. Absolutely. So I'll just, I, I imagine your nation is supportive of your work then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never, yeah. I haven't met anyone that wasn't, I mean, it's kind of hard, right? Cause like within one nation, not everybody's going to agree, right. but like I haven't received any lashback and I, I kind of did it in conjunction with our, our TIPO. So TIPOs can like make or break master's programs with collaboration. That's awesome that you're able to do a program like that or a project. That's awesome. And then so like real quick, you know, before we end the segment, you know, what what are your aspirations in, in the field of archaeology at this point? You know, like what do you hope to accomplish or have an impact on? Yeah, I think overall, I just want to help tribal nations protect their cultural landscapes. Like that's my my overall goal. And Within the work that I'm doing now as director of tribal collaboration at a nonprofit archaeological organization, I'm getting to do some of that. And so we have advocacy campaigns, for example, where we're trying to establish protections for certain landscapes in the Southwest. And so I love kind of working in the preservation conservation world where we're trying to make sure that these sites are undisturbed, that we can get federal protections for them so that tribes can continue to interact with these sites and they can be set aside for future generations to learn from. And so I would say that's my overall goal. And it's really fun now to be working in a field and doing tangible stuff, tangible work that helps helps me accomplish that goal. And on that note, we're going to go ahead and end segment two. We'll be right back after these messages to follow up with Ashley on the work that she's currently doing out in Arizona. And welcome back to Life Runes Podcast, episode 132. We are here with Ashley Thompson. So Ashley, can you tell our audience a little bit, of, well, not a little bit, a lot about the uh, Save History campaign? What is that? Yeah, so at Archaeology Southwest, before I joined on, 
we entered into a cooperative agreement with the Brew of Indian Affairs, specifically with their Western office. And there was a BIA archaeologist that was seeing this issue of looting of archaeological sites, as well as vandalism of archaeological sites on tribal lands. And as we know, as Indigenous people, like, Tribes don't often have the resources that we require to protect our sites or our lands. And so he wanted to do this, this project to help tackle this issue of looting and vandalism. And so we do a lot of stuff through our, our cooperative agreement with the BIA. But one of our big projects is a campaign known as Save History. And the goal of the campaign is to end archaeological resource crime. And what we do is twofold, I would say. We have a website known as savehistory.org. And you can submit a tip on the website if you see looting or vandalism occurring. Because one thing we try to emphasize on the site is like, if you see that happening, don't interfere with it because it could be potentially dangerous. So um, we encourage people to call the whatever land managing agency, law enforcement of the lands that they're on to report it or to report through our, our website where we have an online form and a phone number you can call. So part of Save History is this detection aspect. But what I find the most fun part is actually the educational part of Save History. So One thing we work a lot with is the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, also known as ARPA, and it essentially protects archaeological resources on federal and tribal lands from from looting and also from vandalism. And so on our website and on the respective social medias we have, we try to educate the public on what ARPA is and Essentially that like looting and vandalism is not only unethical, but it's also illegal and you can face like time and fines if you are convicted of violating ARPA. But I think that might work for some people and if they know if they know that they could get in trouble. But another part is we try to share stories from tribal members about the harms of looting and vandalism So we have a blog where we um, have people write about, specifically Indigenous people, share about how harming archaeological sites impacts their communities. And then we also have like a YouTube channel where we've had videos of uh, tribal members talking about the impacts of looting and vandalism. And yeah, we're just trying to garner support and like educate the public on, on these crimes. I think like out of no fault of the public's own, like they don't grow up knowing much about indigenous people. So they often think like, Oh, stealing an artifact, that's not harming anyone. Like it's a victimless crime or like spray painting this petroglyph panel. Like who cares? Like it's, it's ancient history, whatever. But we're really trying to to counter that by sharing uh, stories from Native communities. And so 
yeah, I would encourage your listeners to check it out. And if they they need anything from us, like we um, do fact sheets about archaeological resource crime. We have little postcards um, that we could send out. We have a children's activity guide that's supposed to, you know, teach children about respecting archaeological sites. And we're always looking also for collaborators who want to contribute to our blog. So if your listeners are Indigenous themselves and they they have experience with looted or vandalized sites, I definitely encourage them to reach out to me um, and we could work together to, to feature your story. So that's Save History. And I'm glad that it exists because I don't think there's um, a lot of resources out there that talk specifically about why looting and vandalism is wrong and how to respect indigenous cultural sites. So I used to be a like member of like a multiple Facebook, you know, like arrowhead groups. And I didn't realize how basically it was just a bunch of folks who were looting and it just made my soul cry. And anytime you'd ask them like, so where are you? They're like, I'm not on federal or state property. This is completely privately owned. I'm allowed to do this. It's like, but you're not wrong, but it sucks that you're doing that. And like people finding caches and it's just like, you know, it's, it's not what you find. It's what you find out. And when people remove things from their cultural landscape, like everything that's important, not only to archaeologists, but to indigenous people gets removed. Like it's just sucks that there's this mindset in, in the Americas where they think just because it's ancient, they can do what they want with it. And that, that idea that it's a victimless crime, is just not, not true, but that's really interesting. You got into this to this work. So, how did you get connected with the Save History campaign? Yeah, I really like what you said about it's not how, what you just said. Um, it's not what you find; it's what you find out. Is that mm-hmm. what? You, yeah, that's a really cool quote. I want to use that for Save History. Um, <laughs> I, I I didn't I didn't coin that. I know some other much famous archaeologists said that and I will have to find you who did that. But yeah, do not credit that with me. <laughs> okay. No, that was good. Yeah, but you're you're absolutely right. Like one thing we're seeing online is it's really discouraging to see, but like people giving tips about like how to loot sites legally or just like telling people, you know, tell anyone that you got this from private land because then it, then ARPA doesn't apply. Um, And unfortunately we're seeing, I think with the rise of social media, like communities that are online that are sharing tips or encouraging, I think like through the sharing of, you know, finding arrowheads, for example, if there's not this discussion about what's ethical and what's right, you're kind of perpetuating these harmful actions in, in the wider North American society. But yeah, so essentially last winter around this time, I was considering taking a leave of absence from my PhD. And I started looking at what I could do during that time. <laughs> I really wanted to work full time. I wanted to work in our field, obviously. So luckily, when I looked for jobs in Tucson, there was this position open at Archaeology Southwest, and it sounded like really perfect for my career interests. It was director of the Tribal Collaboration Initiative. And so the organization has like something like 25 full-time employees, and 
Some of them are like support staff. Some of them are like PhD researchers. Some people work on outreach and education. Some people work on national campaigns to protect cultural cultural landscapes. And so the org was looking for a person to, to help guide staff in collaboration with tribes. And so I was like, wow, that sounds really perfect for me because I feel like it's so cheesy and overdone, but like the walking in two worlds thing, like I feel like I really embody <laughs> as part of like my own background being like native and white, but also like having a high degree of education and knowing about archaeology, but also being an advocate for descendant communities and their rights over their cultural material and ancestral places. And so I was like, wow, this position sounds really unique. And like, I, it sounds like it's right in my realm of interests. So I applied and I got the job, which was awesome. And yeah, this was just like something that I stepped into. The campaign Safe History has been going on for a few years now. But yeah, I'm helping contribute to the blog. I'm running our Instagram account and always looking for more stories and information to share. So I'm happy that this is part of my work because it helps me with my overall goal of helping tribes protect cultural resources. And so, and it's also like the opposite of Indiana Jones, right? Like I'm not like looting or pillaging a site to, to steal, to put in a museum. On the other hand, we're trying to like protect these places and leave them intact. And as an organization, actually, they really embodied uh, this type of archaeology they call preservation archaeology, which is very in line, I think, with indigenous archaeology and that they try to do research that protects sites rather than destroys them as a traditional excavation usually always does. And so, for example, there's so many collections out there that are existing. There's so much like data that people can use for their research that isn't being utilized. And so one of our research projects is Cyber Southwest, which is an online database of archaeological data. And uh, since I've come on to my job, we formed this group called a tribal working group to help guide the research team that works on Cyber Southwest and inform them on sort of how can this be useful to tribes, but also how can it be done in a good way, in a respectful way that tribes can support. And so, yeah, I, I, I've been having a lot of fun at my job. I do a lot, <laughs> but I love working with Indigenous people and I like bridging the gap between archaeology and descendant communities. Awesome. That's fantastic. And the quote was by David Hurst Thomas. So not someone I should forget to credit with anything. <laughs> well, all right. That's that's fascinating. Is there plans to eventually, because I know like the Southwest is especially predisposed to looting because there's a lot of really old um, and ancient sites that are readily available at the surface because there's not much soil movement out that way. Is there, is there a hope that safe history will be able to expand like beyond the Southwest and kind of be like more of a continental program to protect cultural heritage or inform populations, you know, in the Great Plains, Northeast, et cetera? Yeah. Well, yeah, I would say that it started as a project for the Southwest, but we've expanded already our scope in terms of regions. And so we were actually just this past week in California 
training federal archaeologists, as well as like tribal monitor technician people on ARPA and how to do a damage assessment, which is required under that law. But we've also worked in like, we were earlier this year in Oklahoma with the Katua Band of Cherokee helping train them. And one of the, the um, we, I, I mentioned we have this cooperative agreement through the BIA. Well, they have special agents that like work on these crimes. And so in working with them, we've helped spread safe history to the Southeast and to the Plains, because I know some of their officers or agents go over there um, and they're often asking us for our safe history materials so they can distribute them to the TIPOs they're working with. And yeah, I would say like a lot of our stories currently are based in the Southwest when we share stories from Indigenous communities, but we're also really open to, yeah, making this a national or even like continental program um, and educating the public. Awesome. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to see all the good work you guys do. So before we end the show, Ashley, what are a couple sources, these could be books, articles, videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in land back initiatives and tribal co-management of federal and state lands? So I was thinking about this question and I just decided to share some things that I've either listened to or read recently that tie into my work or just tie into current events going on in Indian country. And right now, ICWA is really big news in Indian country. The Indian Child Welfare Act, for people that don't know what ICWA is, but essentially that is being challenged right now in the Supreme Court. And there's this really great podcast that discusses the importance of ICWA and why why Native children or I guess why indigenous communities and nations should have authority over where our children end up. And so that podcast is called This Land, specifically season two, talks about ICWA. And that that could be a great resource for people that want to learn more about current events in Indian country. Another resource that I've been engaging with this last year is a book called Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science by Dr. Jessica Hernandez. And this one is really cool. Again, it's not like archaeology focused, but it's it's about indigenous science. And I know that a lot of indigenous archaeologists love to incorporate the traditional knowledge alongside the more standard archaeological knowledge. And I liked this book because it talks about like different types of traditional archaeological knowledge. But then it also comes from a perspective that I'm learning more about. And essentially, Jessica Hernandez, her family is indigenous to Mexico, and she really breaks down like sort of border issues and educates her readers on the issues that she's faced as a displaced indigenous woman now living in the United States. And also, you know, the issues that the wider indigenous relatives from down south face. And so that book has really opened my eyes onto a, a broader perspective of what it doesn't mean to be indigenous and like how are our struggles in the United States, for example, the same or different from our relatives to the south of the, the U.S.-Mexico border. So that's a, a really great book. And then finally, 
I was listening to this podcast this fall called Parks. I think it's just known as Parks. The hosts are Mary Mathis and, and Cody Nelson. And I mentioned earlier that I'm working on these national campaigns to protect cultural landscapes. And so I'm working a lot with conservation organizations that work on federally managed public lands. And I'm really happy that over the last five years, there's been a lot of conversations about how national parks, forest service lands, borough of land management lands, how all of these are the homelands to one or more indigenous people. And I really liked this park podcast because it gives a indigenous perspective of some of our national parks and other federal lands and kind of talks about that history that I think the United States doesn't like to acknowledge that like indigenous people were either killed to, to make these national parks or, and, or removed from them and put onto reservations. And so that's a really great podcast for people wanting to learn more about land back and, and tribal co-management. Awesome. And for our listeners, links to those uh, media will be down below in the episode description. And then uh, lastly, where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Ash Anishinaabe. It's a, it's a mouthful. But yeah, you can find me on Instagram. I do have a TikTok, though. I don't really use it as much. And I deleted my Twitter recently because of the whole Twitter shenanigans going on. So, so find me on Instagram and TikTok. <laughs> yes. Native Twitter has been a buzz recently. That is for sure. Well, excellent. Yeah. So we'll, um, Ash Anishinaabe, we will have that also down in the episode description, a lot of vowels in there. So <laughs> yeah. you'll be able to find that down below everyone. And then, you know, we, we can't let you go without asking our, you know, the one thing we've kept with this podcast going, if given the chance, Ashley, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Ashley Thompson. You can find her on Instagram and TikTok at Ash Anishinaabe. And then for everyone, you know, please be sure to rate and review the podcast and provide us with any feedback on whichever podcasting platform you're using to listen to our show. And if you're listening to this episode on the All Shows feed, please, please, please consider... Actually, don't consider just do it. Find our own show and download our episode straight from that because uh, that allows us to get metrics so we can give our how, how well we're doing to potential sponsors and uh, backers so we can continue to provide more content. Thank you, everyone, and we will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States. Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.